Welcome to The Sound of the Genuine, the Forum for Theological Explorations Limited audio series on vocation, meaning, and purpose. I am Dr. Patrick Reyes, the Forum for Theological Exploration Senior Director of Learn Design. And if you're asking yourself, what is my purpose in the world? What am I called to do? Who am I? This is the place for you. And today we have Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter, Assistant Professor, Assistant Chair, and Department Diversity Officer, Theology and Religious Studies at University of San Diego in California. How you doing? Doing good, man. Y'all can't see him, but for those who are listening, he is taking this interview outside in beautiful, sunny San Diego. Take me back. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? So I'm from Michigan. I grew up, I'm from the Midwest, so I grew up in crazy, deep, depressing winters. But what I love about where I grew up and I love about my people, my Michiganders back home, Midwestern people, is just our ability to connect and always like just talk to people, just have relationships. I think every time I go back, home, either there or to my family in Louisiana and Mississippi. It's the same thing. There's some kind of openness and community that you can't really experience always out here. It takes a little bit longer to get a chance to know people. My mom and my stepdad had, when I was younger, pretty decent jobs. They worked for the automobile industry. They worked for um, General Motors and Ford, respectively. And then Reaganomics happened in the 80s, and they got laid off and everybody got laid off. And so we went from having a fairly stable kind of income. I remember being like in kindergarten, living in a nice house, and then being in first grade, living in an apartment in Indiana, because we got relocated to move. And then in second grade, living in like in this tiny shack of a place. My stepdad, after he got laid off and bounced around jobs and stuff, really struggled with depression and got into some potentially drug problems, had to go to rehab. So just my mom, me, and my sister and my brother, it was crazy, because I think that even at that age, you're talking about, let's say, like seven, eight, nine years old, I had experienced a lot and I was, I've always been a pretty observant kid. And so I knew how things were supposed to be or had an idea of what things were supposed to be like in terms of our ability to be able to eat. Like my first meal when I was in first and second grade was when I got to school because I had free school breakfast. And so I remember thinking like, man, this is, things should be better. But I wasn't like ever mad at my parents or blaming anybody because my mom was working like all the time. I just was like, I guess this is just, this is what it is. And my mom was like, hey, you got to take care of your sisters and your brother. You're the oldest. You got these kind of responsibilities. I think when I think about my early childhood, especially, I think that helped shape me in terms of thinking about my both kind of moral obligations to my family and also the ways in which I think I've probably always been a little bit more serious because <laughs> I just had to be, right? I think for me, that was the beauty of growing up in the low income projects areas was I always felt like I had community. I never struggled with knowing who I was. And, and thinking back on that now, I guess I hadn't really thought about it until you just asked me. I'm like, that was probably some of the most security I ever had in my identity up until probably, I would say, in the last four or five years. Have I gotten back to how I felt then in terms of knowing who I was? Wow. I'm really curious about your vocational imagination at that age. As you're saying, you have deep community, you have a deep connection with folks. What was in your imagination about what you might grow up to be? I guess a couple of things. I knew when I was probably like maybe, I don't know, fourth grade or so that I was smart. At this point, okay, I'm smart. But I had this kind of other thing where I also realized at the same time, or I should say other people realized for me, I was also really good at basketball. Part of me was like, okay, you could do this kind of academic thing. You could try to be the smart kid in class. But for the most part, all those kids were white. And me, black male, to be fair to myself, we talked about being smart. Like in, in the ways of talking about acting white, like we understood in, in intellect to be about performative whiteness when mm. I was a kid, even at that age. And you're talking about, like again, late elementary, early junior high, my vocational imagination was really wrapped up in 
playing ball, playing sports, not thinking that I was ever good enough to be professional. Like I had even had that much awareness at that age because I was playing with other kids that were older than me, that were better than me, but I was good. I was going to be on a team. And so I remember thinking, I just need to be good enough to go to college so I can get a job in terms of this is my vocational goal is not necessarily do anything other than be able to have some sense of security. Because when you grow up in a time or in a community, in a space where you don't have that, where you lack that kind of deep security, you realize how unsettling your week can be. What did your uh, mom want for you, especially as you're in high school and thinking about college and moving on? What, what were her kind of dreams for you? I think my mom wanted me to go to college. My mom always, I think, in parts of her believed I was smart and could actually do something and get out of town, get out of this tiny little Battle Creek, Michigan. But at the same time, she was pretty dependent upon me to help with lots of other stuff besides what you would normally have a kid do. I'd always had this kind of role in the family of being like a third parent. So while my mom wanted me to go to school, she also didn't really want me to go very far <laughs> so I could help out with my brothers and sisters. My mom and my stepdad got divorced when I was a senior in high school. My mom still was just a working class. I worked all through high school. I was playing ball, working like 25, 30 hours a week at a grocery store. I had to help pay bills. So my mom was like, go to college, don't go too far, but whatever you do, just make sure you can have some security. I think she also felt that same stress. Uh, that'd be nice not to have anxiety about paying my bills. When I finally went to school, years later, I'd studied business because I felt like this was how I can make sure I could have a job. There's businesses everywhere. Let me study business. And so I, I will tell you this for any of you considering that. What I realized quickly was a lot of business school is how to compassionately exploit people. <laughs> And I was like, you know what? This ain't for me, man. I'm not trying to figure out how to take people's money and realize pretty quickly that wasn't my gift and my talent wasn't going to be the corporate world because I cared about people too much. And I was like really struggling with my call to ministry because I could feel this kind of the spirit working over me. Really, it was very much feeling as though I was wrestling, really just wrestling with that call. And I didn't want to go down that path because of my fear of security and stability. I didn't want to accept it, even though I could sense it and feel it. I told my wife that I was debating this. She wasn't exactly happy because <laughs> at this point, we had already been married for years and she was like, I didn't sign up for that. And I was like, I didn't think I was going to happen. I would have told you, but I ain't trying to surprise you. Like, surprise, I'm going to be a pastor. We just decided that at this point, that whatever it was I was going to do, I was going to have to help people. I think that was the beginnings of me understanding that my vocation is really, I say healer, which is an interesting way to talk about things that I do about teaching. But when I try to look at the through line, it's healing is, is probably how, how I would best describe it. My wife was encouraging me to do that. And my pastor, I didn't tell him I was struggling with a call to ministry. He just said, hey, I know you're struggling with a call to ministry and like just scared the living crap out of me, man. He's like, I can see it. I can tell. I've been through it and just thought you can talk to me about it. And so I'd already started this degree. So we decided, okay, I'm going to go to this school, Cornerstone University. I'm going to study business because I want to get a job and maybe I'll do something nonprofit, but I minored in religion. And so that's when I really got the taste of studying the Bible, studying theology, and really starting to, what I would say, fall in love with God with my mind rather than just my heart. And, and I was really excited by it. I did really well. What I realized is when I'm interested in something and I'm passionate about it and I'm committed to it, 
that I can be really successful and that I should seek those things that, as Howard Thurman would say, make me feel alive. So you do well, and then people want to help support you in that process. So you go from this, not a compassionate business person to this healer. Sounds like your community, your pastor, everyone's affirming your call. What's your next step? I mean, where do you go to, I'm assuming seminary? That's yes. The next step? Yeah. So the next step is that crazy flight out to LA where I land and I'm thinking I'm going to come to, I'm gonna, exactly. I'm going to go towards the sun. I'm going West. And I went to Claremont for lots of reasons, but among them was the diversity. I'm in an interracial marriage. My wife is white. And being in Michigan in that kind of space was really challenging because Michigan then was the same way Michigan is now. The same thing you see on the news with the militias and the Capitol building and all this stuff that you see, that stuff has always been there. That stuff I grew up with. And so it was tough, man. My wife and I dealt with a lot of stuff that made it just stressful. And so come to California, it was like a breath of fresh air because it just wasn't that big a deal. We could be together and people weren't bothering us, like saying stuff to her. And she didn't have to deal with a lot of the drama. And so I think more than anything, even though we're really far from family and that was hard, I think it gave us time to grow together as a couple, as our own together unit, I guess, our own relationship. Like I remember when I got to campus after my first few weeks of my first semester there, I was thinking there's no way I'm going to graduate in three years with this degree because I wasn't prepared for the jump up in intellectual rigor from graduate school to undergrad. Again, I was an average high school student. I went to business school and I'm not trying to be offensive to any of you went to business school, but it's not exactly the most academically challenging environment. But honestly, I think what helped me settle in was after my first semester, near the end of my first semester, I'm taking Hebrew Bible with Christine Detroyer, who now teaches at a university in Belgium. And I just realized how much I loved like the academic study of the Hebrew Bible. I was like, man, this is really cool. And after we finished, we had an oral exam and I did well and we were finishing up and she's, have you ever thought about doing a PhD? Mm-hmm. And I was like, what's a PhD? <laughs> I swear to God, man, I knew they were doctors, but I didn't really know like the letters and stuff, man. Yeah. So this has been like the poor kind of country boy. And she kind of chuckles and she talks about like doctoral study and what that means. She talks about how many languages I'd have to learn. And I was like, nah, man, I ain't doing that. <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's what I said in my head. I was just like, I was like, nah, nah, nah. There's things I know I have to learn, but if I can find a way to do it, that channels also what I'm fascinated by, what I'm interested in, I'll do well. And that I can make it here too. I have this really well-known biblical scholar who thinks I'm smart enough to do something I didn't even know existed. And that for me was really foundational to give me that confidence to be like, okay, all right, let's buckle down. You can do this. Dr. Detroyer, who still is a good friend of mine, really was instrumental in those first few years of me beginning to believe in myself. So she puts this seed in your head, but I know you're not a Hebrew Bible scholar, and I know you you pastored as well. So how did you end up landing a PhD program? How did you choose your discipline? How did you choose your research? That's pretty far departure from Hebrew Bible. Yeah, in- interesting though, I am probably one of the few ethicists who actually uses the Bible in their work because what she was right. I do love the Bible. (laughs) I actually do love the Bible. And so I remember when, when the editors are looking at my book or the reviewers, they're like, literally one of them said, you don't have to have this in here. And I was like, yes, I do. I I need to have this in here because somebody's going to think this is important as I do. 
because black church folks actually like the Bible. That's what I keep going back to. And this gets to your point about me pastoring. So yeah. like I pastored all through my MDiv. I was an assistant pastor at a predominantly Filipino church that it was like 60% Filipino, 40% white. And I did that to put myself in a new space to do something different. And because I was always interested in applying what I was learning in school to what I was getting in church. At this point, I had accepted that I was going to be a pastor. Like I hadn't really thought about, I hadn't really seriously thought about doing a PhD. Even if I did do a PhD, I was like, oh, I'm probably still going to be a pastor. And I was finding this beautiful synergy between the things I was learning in the classroom to preaching and teaching I was doing. And after the first semester of my second year, my MDiv, I have Philip Clayton talk to me about doing a PhD in theology. And then I have Dr. Amesbury, Richard Amesbury, talks to me about doing a PhD in ethics. And I will tell you that the reason I decided to settle on ethics was because for me, ethics was probably the closest academic discipline that was practical, other than practical theology, because at that time, practical theology, at least at Claremont, was more like, it was more rooted in like pastoral care and counseling kind of stuff, which I didn't necessarily want to do, or just education, which I didn't really want to do. I was really interested in like very specific, concrete, like issues of race. I've always been interested in issues of race and racism because of my own particular experience. And so I settled on that and was like, okay, I should at least try. If that's ended up staying at Claremont. And to be honest, Pat, I, I didn't even know what I was going to study. Like I knew I was going to study race and racism, <laughs> yeah. but I wasn't like a hundred percent clear. I was like, well, I'm going to study racism because that to me is a huge issue. I took this class <laughs> called the theology and animals and theology. I can't remember something like that. Basically some class about animals and theology with Grace Gow. At this time, she's my advisor. I'm in this class. And the first thing we read the story, this book by Coetzee, that basically talks about this connection between oppression and animals and, and veganism. And these seeds start getting planted in me. I can see, I'm like, man, the way they're talking about these animals feels like they're talking about black people. That's the way I, mm. that's the way I talked about it. I was like, well, this is, this is interesting. Because again, my grandparents are from Mississippi and Louisiana. They migrated north. So my grandpa, when he did talk, he's pretty introverted, told stories about the stuff he had to deal with as a migrant field worker, right? Mm. As a migrant picker, the crazy racism he dealt with. And so I had those stories already in my head. And then we read this book by Marjorie Spiegel called The Dreaded Comparison, Human and Animal Slavery. And man, it just like changed my world because I could connect the stories my grandfather told me, how he grew up in the middle of nowhere, in the fields, picking, living in like old slave quarters, sleeping on a straw, basically only went to school till he was eight and then was just out as a migrant picker, just going from farm to farm, looking for work. I could see my grandpa in those pictures. I could see my grandma in those pictures. And I thought, man, there's something about this feels wrong. How people are theologically justifying the marginalization of humans, the exploitation of humans and exploitation of animals seems to me to be about the same kind of thinking. It's the same kind of logic. I knew it emotionally before I could even explain it intellectually because I had all those stories in me that I didn't know how to share at that moment. I had all that, like, just knowledge from my families, and I say that plural, from both sides of the family poured into me. And so I write this paper for the end of that class, essentially arguing about the connections between the exploitation of animals, exploitation of black people, and how if you're about liberation, as a black person, if you're about liberation theology, you need to be about liberation. You can't be arguing for equality with the oppressor. You need to be arguing about the liberation from the logic of oppression. Hey, what's going on? It's Patrick Reyes from the Forum for Theological Exploration. We are glad that you have enjoyed the sound of the genuine. And if you enjoy these stories, 
I want to recommend a book, Another Way, Living and Leading Change on Purpose by FT's President Stephen Lewis, our senior fellow Dory Baker, and our former vice president and now president of the Interdenominational Theological Center, Matthew Wesley Williams. They can help you discern your call. And more than just discern your call, if you go to ftleaders.org, you can download the guide from the book as well. Leading Another Way. So if you're leading communities in discerning their call, they put together a great guide for doing that sort of work. Thank you again for listening to The Sound of the Genuine. And as always, you can find all of this and more at ftleaders.org. If you're about liberation, as a black person, if you're about liberation theology, you need to be about liberation. You can't be arguing for equality with the oppressor. You need to be arguing about the liberation from the logic of oppression. If that same logic of oppression is used to exploit non-human nature and non-human animals, then you need to also be about dismantling of that. And so I became a vegetarian and I became interested in ecology. So at the end of that class, Grace tells me if this paper goes really well, you could revise it and maybe present it at AAR the next year. She calls me after she gets done grading it. Christopher, this is really good. And if you want to, this could be your dissertation. This is not a paper for you to present at AAR. She's like, there's chapters in here. There's sections you can build on. So is this something you're interested in? And I was like, yeah, I was like this seems like there's so much more here to say. And that's what I tell my students when I teach them writing. I'm like, I've been uh, revising the same paper since 2010 and it is now 2020. And the book is probably, the book is going to get published in June of 2021. (laughs) So so that may be how long it takes to finish revising your paper. (laughs) Christopher, I just got to say too, though, since I know you, I want everyone listening to be clear about how this process goes. Because one of the things I admire most about you is that While you're holding this weight of your ancestors with these stories, these images you have of your grandparents doing the academic process, you were working. You were working for Claremont. You were working as a pastor. Life didn't stop for you to have this awakening of what your dissertation project, eventual book, 11 years later was going to be. How do you navigate all that happening at once as you're coming to this is what I'm going to do with my life with this kind of backdrop as well that you were looking for stability? So... Thank you for naming that, because I tend to forget about that, or sharing it at least, because again, man, you know what? You'll see a theme even when you get the book, because of course, you know, I'm going to send you a copy of how much my grandparents shaped me. So my grandparents, man, like, they worked like all the time, man. Like, he worked in the fields, and he got a factory job and worked all the time. I had this background in my head of, I need to make sure that we have that kind of security and stability, and that requires me to work, regardless of what my commitments are. I worked I think to my MDiv, probably about 20 to 30 hours a week between working at Claremont and working at the church I was working at in Torrance. And then during my PhD, I was a senior pastor at First UMC of Compton during my coursework. So I'm working full time there. I'm the housing director on campus. So I'm in charge of campus housing, living on campus. My little brother has to come live with me because of family drama. And so he finishes high school living with me. And and so all this stuff is happening. And it was a lot. I think the way I survived is I was really fortunate to have this church appointment in Compton because they nurtured me and my wife was there supporting me too. I would never encourage someone to have to do that because the downside of all that stuff was I got so wrapped up in all the jobs and all the academic stuff and presenting. I I was to say this, if you are a person of color and you're thinking about doing a PhD, you have to be strategic about trying to graduate in five years so you can get a job. Like that stuff matters. And I was trying to be really clear about that. I need to make sure I have a plan in place to know I need to present at AAR. I need to do this. I need to do that. I knew I needed to do that. In the midst of doing that, 
my marriage was not going the way it needed to go, which mm-hmm. is not like shocking to anybody else as a PhD who has gone through it, man. Like right. it's really tough on a relationship. And so, yeah, man, my first year after coursework, we were separated. It was intense. It was rough. I, I went from this high of just presenting my first paper at AAR. It was on like essentially the same things I ended up writing in my dissertation about the ways in which the category of the animal is complicated when you take race into consideration and how these things need to be teased out. We're talking about how we understand what it means to be human within the perspective of theological anthropology. Mm-hmm. And every question after the presentation was directed towards me. I mm-hmm. felt like I was like, in my head, I'm just like, dude, I am mailing it. Like I am killing it. And so this is November and I'm on this high very end of November. And then beginning of January, my wife is like, hey man, I'm out. So like it all comes crashing down. That was a real valley of the shadow of death kind of time of my life. And my wife and I went to therapy to deal with a lot of this stuff in our marriage. And I think what I learned was just how important your mental health is. Essentially, I studied dehumanization. I studied the ways racism impacts people, whether it be white people or black people. I read these narratives and these stories and they take a toll. They take yeah. a toll. And I didn't realize between that and then working at a church and dealing with all the things that go along with the church and the way that emotion takes a toll on you, that I wasn't present at home because I wasn't present for myself internally. One thing that I encourage my students to do now is to really pay attention not only to their mental health, but having compassion for themselves. And knowing that unless you actually have compassion for yourself, that is what fills you up and gives you the capacity to actually care for others. It's counterintuitive, but that's how it is. You really do have to love yourself in order to be able to, to love others in that way. And I didn't fully get that until I went through a crisis. But as a consequence of that crisis, man, like it changed me forever and for the good. And I think I'm much more secure in who I am, much more self-aware and self-confident. I think having had to go to the depths of my soul to rediscover who I was and what I was supposed to do. So actually, thank you for asking that question because that's an important part of the journey too. I mean, I think about all the reports that we get from doctoral students around the dehumanization process of studying because you're you know basically cutting yourself off at the neck and saying only everything above matters and it sounds like you really went through a humanization process of yourself of your own soul of your own relationships that's powerful you still have to write a dissertation you still have to apply for jobs what's the next step after this soul searching and and finding that was about like a nine-month pause where i didn't do anything but try to save my marriage and once we got that back on track i got back on track in terms of my academic stuff, I was already fortunate at this point, I was already FTE doctoral fellow. So I had a cohort of folks to lean on. Matthew was tremendously helpful to me in multiple times in this process. And the other thing I did was throughout my post coursework time was about relationships. And I think more than anything else, I realized how important relationships are in life, but particularly in academe, you have to get to know people. And not like, relationships that are inauthentic where you're trying to be someone you're not because I definitely don't feel like I fit in all the time in the academy even among other black scholars because and maybe this is my own stuff coming up but my own economic insecurities growing up so poor there's just things that I can tell are a class distinction that I'm like yes. eh, I don't really fit in this place but I was fortunate to really make connections with people in the animals and religion group at AAR the religion and ecology group at AAR people at FTE, going to those receptions and just talking to people and talking about my work was really fruitful. So that when I got to the point of writing my dissertation, writing went well, the defense, it was complicated. When I thought I was going to defend, turns out that we ended up having to delay it because I wasn't quite ready. And that was very frustrating at the time. 
because I don't know that the process was handled appropriately in terms of helping me understand that I wasn't ready. But at the same time, it forced me to go back and look at some of the things I was doing at my work and reevaluate some of my arguments. And it made me a better writer. It made me better with self-critique. That's probably the best way mm-hmm. to say it. I can look at things and, okay, is there a better way to say this? Or what exactly am I trying to say? And, and I think that, for me, is going to be a very fruitful skill for writing. It hurt a lot, but I think that things happen. After I finish dissertation, that gets it done. I apply for, man, I, I don't know, about 10, 15 jobs. And I got a postdoc at the University of San Diego. Part of the reason I think I got, well, part of the reason I know I got hired is because a few of the people at USD had heard me speak at AAR. I wasn't the first choice, actually, that they offered the position to someone else who turned it down. But Steve Davidson was at a school. He's in Chicago now. And I was interviewing for another school up in the Berkeley area. And I thought I was going to get the job. And I didn't. And Steve told me, he, he was like, he's like, sometimes these things have a way of working out for the best. I know you another scholarship. I feel confident things are going to work out for you. And he was right, man. It's about how you respond rather than react. I knew if I didn't get the jobs that I applied to after I finished my dissertation, I was already either going to go into higher ed administration because of my background with the business degree comes back again. It's in business administration. So I could already do it administration. <laughs> I knew I could do that. Yeah. And I could be a pastor. I'm going to have stability. I wasn't wrapped up in being an academic. So much of my academic work is tied to the community and tied to my people. And now what I call my people now is expanding to include like farmers and farm workers and out here, Latinx folks, literally your people. Yeah. Literally it's your people. Are Valley. Yeah. yeah, exactly. When the book is published, the work that I'm doing now is going to take me up north to do work in the communities and in the fields and not just here, but also across the country. So yeah, man, I, I think be strategic. That's the best thing I would say, man, is really be strategic and have a plan and cultivate those relationships because you never know when they're going to pay off. You're well situated down there in San Diego to do your research to humanize both students and our people. You're healing through scholarship. And I I have just one last question for you, which is how much of this vocation came from your own sense of self as getting stability and how much comes from the community? I think my vocation, it it is deeply wrapped up in my sense of self. My community affirms it. I think that's what's happened because it's me. It is totally me. But I don't know that I could have gotten this path if when I was at Compton, I'm 29 years old. I'm a senior pastor at this church where I got people that are like between 50 and 80. And so while I was there, that second year is when I started talking a lot more about my work in ecological ethics and Mm. talking about food and talking about animals and really talking about how important food justice and ecological justice is to the Black community and how we're going to be the ones who really suffer from the impacts of climate change. And so I started talking about this through the lens of food, because at this point, they already know I'm vegetarian. So what I started doing is I started cooking. I've been cooking, but I started bringing my food to church Mm. because Black church, they're going to eat what the pastor makes. They're going to eat my wife makes because this is what we do. They're not going to be rude. And so I've made like vegan green beans, like vegan red beans and rice. I started bringing stuff I know they would mm-hmm. like, and they started eating it. And they're like, man, this is, this is really good. And I'm like, yeah, it is good. And <laughs> it doesn't have meat and it's healthy. And so then I started bringing recipes. And so then we started this real thing about the importance of health and wellness and how we need to actually take care of ourselves and how, again, because being a Compton, we live in this food apartheid space where there isn't access to different things. And so and I started tying this into theological belief and theological practice. Wow. Then we started talking about exercise. And, and so everything just starts expanding and growing. Like they affirmed it for me. That was the affirmation I needed. So then I could take it to other places and other communities and talk about it. 
And between them and my parents and my grandfather, I think those are the kind of affirmations I need to do the work that I feel like God has called me to do. But it definitely is me knowing that my sense of self is fulfilled when I heal. And for me, again, that healing part is teaching. That's the primary, whether it be preaching, whether it be leading, whether it be in, in the classroom, whether it be in writing, there's always an element to whatever it is I do that's trying to help people recover their sense of self and who they are. I want us to redefine what it means to be human. And at the core, what it means to be human is what, what Frank Ryder's called the compassion itself. It really is this way in which we are grounded in who we are. We're able to connect with others. And that puts us in a more intimate relationship with God and with non-human nature. And that's our natural space. And then all this other stuff, it pulls us away from that. So how can we stay grounded in the truth of who we are? That's what I try to allow us to do. And that means we have to resist some things, evil, <laughs> racism, all the other kind of stuff. But that's what keeps us grounded in that resistance. That's, I guess, how I see my work and, and how the community has affirmed it for me. Chris, I'm so grateful to know you and so grateful you shared your story with us and, and just to affirm your call, not that you need it from me, but I mean, you have healed us with your story. You have fed us literally your research. And I, I honestly just have to say, I feel rehumanized in a way that I think in a lot of these conversations that folks who are discerning, I called to do a PhD, feel dehumanized in the process. We're not just knowledge machines. We're whole beings that need to be fed, like you fed your congregation. So I'm just so grateful for you and grateful to know you and know your story. So thank you. Thanks, Patrick. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to Dr. Carter's story. Be sure to check out his book, The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice, out by University of Illinois Press. I want to give a special shout out to our design managers, Heather Wallace and Elsie Barnhart, and at Yale Beats for his music. Do us a favor and share this limited audio series with a friend. FT is a leadership incubator cultivating diverse young adults to be faithful, wise, and courageous leaders for the church and the academy. Thank you for listening and see you next time on The Sound of the Genuine.